Society of South Australia podcast, where we bring you conversations on all things biology in our state. I'm your host, Brad Bianco. Today's guest is Talia Perry. Talia is a PhD student at the University of Adelaide who is developing molecular tools for echidna conservation using citizen science. Talia Perry, thank you for coming on the Biology Society podcast. Thank you so much for having me. First, I'd really like to congratulate you on your essay, Young Achiever Award in STEM. Thank you so much. That's really cool. <laughs> So tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. All right. Well, um, I, I guess now I'm known as the Echidna Woman. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's an unfortunate or a great thing. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. I am a PhD student in Professor Frank Gritzner's lab, uh, which is actually a genetics lab. So I am from a genetics background. I did my undergrad majoring in both genetics and zoology because I've always been interested in mammals in particular and wanting to combine the two areas together, so genetics and mammals, and mainly for conservation purposes if I could. So that's sort of how it all got me to where I am right now. So I am doing projects on echidna biology, the molecular biology mostly, but also trying to tie that in with conservation efforts so that we can actually help save them into the future. Cool. We're always curious about how people came across their study. So how did echidnas and genetics fall on your lap? Well, the thing with genetics is a lot of it is human-focused. So I wanted something that would not be that. (laughs) And I actually did my honours in the Ancient DNA Lab, ACAD, um, because, again, it was molecular biology, genetics um, and animals. And I did a really great study on an extinct species of peccary, which are like... Um, pig or something, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, they're similar to pigs. They're like closely related to pigs. Um, they live in North and South America. And so I had these 10,000-year-old fossils that I got to take DNA out of and figure out how this particular species was related to um, living species of peccaries. And it was a cool project. I loved it. I learned so many techniques, but I didn't want to continue studying things that were already extinct. I wanted to help things stop be- becoming extinct. And so I, Yeah. <laughs> so I basically was just on a hunt for another lab that was doing mammals and genetics. And Frank's lab was the only one in Adelaide Uni that I knew of. So I went and uh, spoke to him and he wasn't even doing anything remotely like what I'm doing right now. Like uh, he was hardcore, like sex chromosome work and doing all of this like really technical microscope work and not something I was particularly interested in but I just went to speak to him anyway and he was like yeah cool I'm so interested in moving into the conservation space I have this really awesome new uh, tissue that we they hadn't had before so my project actually started looking at tissue from deceased juvenile echidnas and we've never had material from juvenile echidna or platypus before ever. So oh, I wow. am the first person to work on that, which was really cool. So I started my project actually looking at how the, the juvenile tissues differ to the adult tissues and how developmental processes are working and how their reproduction oh, yeah. system cool. is different. And it was, yeah, so that's where it all started. And then I just sort of snowballed into yeah, this project like that I'm running now. <laughs> that project, you are the echidna lady, so <laughs> what are you doing? What, yeah. what, how did you get a title like that? <laughs> um, I think from all of my talks. <laughs> I talk so much about echidnas that people are just like, yeah, this is the echidna lady. But I guess the biggest reason is from the citizen science project that I'm running. So 
throughout my PhD, I've developed this project called Echidna CSI. So we put the CSI part into it because we are kind of looking at forensic-y types of molecules, you know, really broken, degraded DNA samples and things like that. Mm. And the way that this all came about was because echidnas are so understudied in Australia. Like the only well-studied population is in Kangaroo Island. And the rest, like literally the rest of Australia is almost untouched. We don't know much about where they're living, how healthy they are, how much they're in decline. And obviously with the conservation sense in me, I wanted to try and fix that. Mm. So we basically enlisted the public to help us out with this and develop the citizen science project in order to be able to get big amounts of data really, really quickly. And it just so happened that every single person that I spoke to were like, well, why can't you study echidnas? We see them all the time in our backyards or when we're bushwalking or when we're camping or on the side of the road. Like everyone else was like, we see them all the time. Why can't you find them? So we're like, cool, let's collect that data and actually put some use to it. So it started from that idea. And then we were like, what else can we get the public to do that actually would tie in with the molecular biology side of things? And we're asking them to collect the kidney poo for me. <laughs> so from that, we can get um, a whole range of DNA and hormones from the scats, which is the more technical term for poo, uh, <laughs> to be able to answer more questions about their biology, which has been a really, really cool thing to do. Nice. So you've got people taking photos and sending you kidney shit. Yeah, yeah, literally in the mail. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> which is interesting. So what, what can you tell from, from, a, from a scat? Like what kind of markers are you looking for and what? you infer from those mm, So from the scats themselves, they've got a whole range of different types of DNA in them. So you've got the DNA from the echidnas themselves. So from that, we can look at, you know, particular regions of DNA that are very well characterized. And if you get, you know, echidnas from across the country and you sequence that particular part of the DNA, you can look at the differences. And basically, the more differences in the entire population, the more genetically healthy it is. Right, um, diversity. Yeah, you want more diversity. So whereas if all of those sequences end up being identical, then you're a little bit worried for the population because they might be doing more inbreeding mm. and be in decline and not be genetically healthy for the rest of, you know, forever. Uh, <laughs> for however long they're here for. But it also helps us determine subspecies as well. So right. echidnas are broken up into five subspecies, but if they're huh. real subspecies or not is is under question. Right. So you're just looking for like a level of difference that meets a arbitrary criteria. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So the, the way that they were just made subspecies is basically off of their location. So there's a subspecies in Tasmania and Kangaroo Island and Papua New Guinea. And then the other two are sort of like, you know, eastern side of Australia, rest of Australia. And the only other differences are their fur is slightly different coloured down in Tasmania and Kangaroo Island. And like their third toe or something is measured as a as a distance thing. If like okay. how big they are, apparently means because taxonomists. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, there's a lot of controversy around whether that's actually a proper way to be splitting them up, uh-huh. or if they are just one species, or if they're more than one species. Like we just right. we just don't don't have that so information. Many there's so many questions about them. So that's one. Thing we can get from the DNA in the scats, but we can also get DNA from the food that they've eaten. So echidnas are known as anteaters, so, you know, eating ants and termites, but we actually see 
them physically eat other insects, especially grubs. They'll sort of like split them open mm. and suck them up because they can't actually open their jaws. Right. They just use their long sticky tongues. And so because you can't see them physically in the scats, then we can't actually identify what species of insects they are. Mm-hmm. Even ants, we don't really know well characterise which species they're eating in different areas. So from the DNA level, you actually can figure that out. So you again, you sort of take a particular region of the DNA and these are called like DNA barcodes. Right, so you're comparing it to a database of... Yeah. yeah of things that have already been sequenced. And the cool thing about this is that these stretches of DNA, they're really, really variable for a particular region, and then either side of them, they're very conserved. So you sort of just target that whole thing, and then you can line them up you know, above each other and see all of the differences and be like, cool, that is this particular insect and this particular species. And right. Do that sort of level the magic of, catalog- of cataloging, magic of genetics, <laughs> <laughs> and a similar technique can be used as well as figuring out the diet is figuring out their gut microbiome. Oh, so, right. like with humans, if you've got a healthy gut microbiome, mm-hmm. you are a healthy p- person. So we can see that with the kidneys too. We can actually look at the bacteria species that are living in their guts and figure out how healthy they are. And that's also really interesting, not only to look at the wild populations, but to compare them to the captive ones, because I've actually had a lot of gut issues. Yeah, I imagine um, they must differ greatly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's been some, like, basically they've had like diarrhea in the captive populations because they just haven't been healthy and they, you know, they can't eat their millions of like ants a day. So they instead are given sort of like a, a mush mixture of what is the ideal echidna diet with, you know, the correct amount of carbs and protein and fats right. or whatever. So for a while, I think that was, wasn't was really well studied, well researched, so they just sort of put something together and used it, and that wasn't great for them. But Taronga Zoo actually have someone who is a, like, a nutritionist there for their animals, and she's developed a proper echidna diet. And so they're seeing that they're becoming much more healthier, and they used to develop these ulcers inside their stomachs as well, so oh, wow. they're seeing them disappear. So, yeah, so, again, being able to compare the gut microbiomes of those animals to... To each other and to the wild is really exciting. Wow! So you can actually tell a lot from. You can get yeah. a lot just yeah. from one simple scat. It is it is ridiculous. And the hormones. What can you tell from the hormones? So the hormones is interesting because hormones don't actually survive that long in the environment. Whereas DNA, like I was yeah. doing ancient DNA yeah, stuff, and yeah. up to hundreds of thousands of years, like they can stay around forever. Whereas hormones, not so much. So we're still trying to figure out if this will actually work with the wild populations, but we still do have the captive populations that we're working with as well. So Perth Zoo in particular have a great breeding program and they've literally collected echidna poo for me over like an almost 12 month period uh, from about six individuals. So we're looking at stress levels with them so you can measure the cortisol cortisol in the scats and essentially by matching that up with potentially stressful events that they've undergone, so anytime a um, keeper has had to pick it up or uh, they've gone under an examination or they even told us when there were fireworks nearby so that we can sort of track their cortisol levels in the scats and see if that actually does peak at those particular stressful times because if we can match that up then we can have like a a schematic and be like okay if they get to this level of like concentration of cortisol in their scat they're highly stressed in this situation stop putting them in that situation sort of thing oh wow so you're um, infor- informing how we keep these animals yeah and zoos now are like really onto making sure that they're being good to their animals and not putting them in stressful situations when they're not when they don't need to so i think that's really cool that they're really putting that much effort in so if we can get that 
into the wild populations too. That means we can actually find out if there are particularly stressed animals out there and what might be the reasons that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah. So echidnas occur all over Australia. So yes. they have this ginormous range. Mm -hmm. Like you go on uh, the Atlas of Living Australia and it's just the whole continent colored in one solid color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about like within their range, do we know much about how their distribution differs? So are they only occurring in particular sub-habitats or like, what do we know about their distribution? <laughs> we don't know that, which is why I think um, the citizen science part of things is really exciting to see if we can actually tease that apart a little bit more. Because like you said, if you, if you Google a map of echidnas, it's just Australia. Like, it's, they don't actually tell you where the dots lie or anything. And even with proper sort of ecological studies, you still have that gap in the middle of Australia because even proper ecologists don't go out into that area all that often. So we're always going to miss that sort of data set. Yeah, there's definitely a bias. There's definitely a bias. But the cool thing with Echidna CSI is that every time I give a talk or every time I sort of, you know, have a conversation with someone and I'm like, we want to push it further and further into the centre, we're seeing those dots move further and further into the centre. So we were really starting from, you know, literally dots in the major cities to getting them into pretty much like a, in a ring around the outside of Australia. And now we're getting them pushing further and further and further inside. So I've even gotten scats from the APY lands, which is amazing. Really cool. Literally smack bang in the middle of, of Australia. So we're getting more dense information around human populated areas so hopefully that will tell us a little bit more about how they're dealing with those sorts of areas and if we can do more ecological modeling types of things and hopefully we can figure out what vegetation types are actually going towards specific habitat requirements exactly yeah. yeah yeah you know are there particular soil types that they really need to be in so that they can get their nutrients and whatever they need to do but yeah, that's still big questions that we have such little information It's incredible on. that there's such an iconic animal that's I know. so poorly understood. Yeah, it's really because remarkable. There's, yeah, there's such, there's such few research groups actually working on them. So, you know, Peggy Reese Miller in Kangaroo Island, um, she's an icon and everyone, again, knows who she is. She's the original echidna woman. <laughs> you served her title. <laughs> And she's been working on the Kangaroo Island population for over 30 years now, which has been incredible. But yeah, there's just, you know, a couple of researchers you know, around the Sydney area and one I know of in WA, but doing not even sort of ecological conservation work. One of them's doing echidna trafficking, illegal trafficking, oh, yeah. um, and another one's doing more like locomotion-y type stuff. And they're literally the only people I know in the world that are studying echidnas. So, so it's, it's a small group of us and I don't know why. Like, I do know why because they're really hard to study in the wild. Like, right. they're, they're pain in the arse. So, yeah, so it, it makes sense. But also, like, there's so much new technology and new tools mm -hmm. now. We can we can get over those hurdles now. So I'm hoping in the next, you know, 10 years or so there'll be more and more groups popping up. So I guess this is one of the reasons why a project like this really lends itself to citizen science because, mm. you know, they are such a cryptic animal with yep. such a wide distribution, theoretically anyone in Australia with a smartphone can help you with your research. Exactly. So let's, let's talk about citizen science. First of yeah. all, what, what is citizen science? Citizen science essentially is where the general public either help out with collecting or analysing data or even starting up their own projects. So I think citizen science is moving, maybe not moving away, but it's broadening itself up. It used to be more of a, you know, a researcher had an idea wanted to enlist the public, could see it working somehow, 
and developed a project so that people could get involved. And, and usually it was either collecting or analysing data. But now we're seeing a lot more of this sort of ground-up approach where a community group themselves will have questions that they want to answer and they will then sort of seek advice from a researcher and then build their own projects, which is a cool idea in itself because not only are you getting them to be more empowered in what they can do and teaching them new skills and more about science, but you're also allowing them to sort of become self-sufficient and like you can, you know, give them your advice, help them out and then they can run it and, you know, you don't, they don't necessarily need you again after that. And I think that's a really cool, cool thing as well. Are you limited in the kinds of data you can collect with a citizen's project? Did, did, did using a citizen science model direct how you would structure your research? Yeah, well, I think there always is going to be limitations. So especially, like, take for example the ecological modelling side of things. We don't have data, like, data saying this isn't where echidnas live. So that's an important thing usually with proper, de- properly designed ecological projects is you've got, you know, you walk a transect and be like, yes, this was here, no, this was not here. Presence, um, absence. Exactly. Yeah. So we don't have the absence data, we've only got the presence data. So you still need to include that bias into your into your models when you're doing it. In terms of the, like, the scat collection side of things and the molecular biology side of things, you know, we might not be able to do the, the crazy hormone stuff that we would like to do, but it's opened up those avenues and I don't think... I could ever have done this sort of work on my own. It would have been a tiny, tiny project compared to this gigantic thing that's just sort of blossomed and gone crazy. So having, you know, we've got over 300 scats now that have been collected from across the country. And we've even had uh, individuals that have collected up to 50 scats from their own property. So not only are we getting, you know, different areas from the scats that we probably wouldn't normally get. We're also getting this really great timeline. And so we can look at seasonal variations and we can actually get really good statistical power from these sorts of things, getting actual replicates. So you can tell genetically that it's from the same individual echidna. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's such a powerful approach. And from, I think it depends on how you design your project because you can't design a citizen science project how you would design a normal research project. Yeah, exactly. And so you've always got to be thinking, how can I make the data as good as possible? So if we have the photos being taken with the um, yeah. through the app yeah. because you know that's proof that this person actually saw an echidna. There are projects that don't have that sort of level of proof, and so then they lend themselves to being criticised when they want to publish their data. So you've always just got to make sure you're one step ahead when you're designing these projects yeah. and you have to design it differently. You can't think the same way that you would do if you were trusting like, you know, a handful of really reliable researchers that have been well trained. Cool. So how are you cleaning up the data and how are you storing? I mean, if people are sending you, or one, if people are sending you scats, you've got to have a giant collection of scats, but <laughs> more, more of the digital side. So yeah. photos, mm-hmm. you got Hundreds and hundreds or whatever. How many photos do you have? Uh, I've got over 5,000 5, now. 5,000 <laughs> yeah. photos. So you're just cataloging them and putting them on a database? So these actually directly sort of go to ALA. Oh, yeah. So Alan Stenhouse, who was the person who, who made the app for us, shout out to Alan, he's amazing. <laughs> he essentially hooked it up so that we have what's called a BioCollect page. So on the Atlas of Living Australia, there actually is a whole hub of citizen science projects. So you can actually go to the Atlas of Living Australia and go to their BioCollect section 
and that's where like all of pretty much all of the Australian citizen science projects exist right now and so you can create a page on that and you can even make sort of surveys on there so that people can put their data directly through that so if you know some people can't can't or don't want to use our app that's fine they can literally go to our biocollect page which has an echidna csi logo and everything and then they can click onto that and they can submit their data through that upload their photo and tell us where it was found and so all of that data, even the stuff that's through the app, goes directly to that BioCollect page. So you, even people can see, if they go to a BioCollect page, you can see the over 5,000 yeah. sightings. They can see the map of where they are. So it's all publicly available already, basically. Like, you can physically see what the data is. And, yeah, so that's where it's stored at the moment, which is great, because I can literally press a button and download an Excel spreadsheet that gives me all of the information and start my analysis from there sort of thing. So there's, it's been quite well designed so that you have you limit the amount of data quality control that you have to do and data cleanup that you have to do because that's obviously a, a big yeah. time time dump but the only really thing we have to clean up is if people take photos that aren't in the kinder right which you know you <laughs> Does expect that happen often? um like not so often like you know out of the five thousand there's probably been a hundred or so a hundred yeah what, what are they? like it'll either be people like testing the app so they'll just take a photo of the floor right, or something okay. um just to see how it works which I, makes sense i do that with apps all the time yeah. so okay. like, of course that would happen or there would just people be people trying to be funny so they'll just be like in a kid or in a museum or yeah. or you know just in a kid the statue and they'll take a photo of me like oh, oh, and I'm like it's really funny and really cute but also I have to clean this up <laughs> one of the things that I was thinking about Susan Science and the way that your app works was the advent of Pokemon Go <laughs> yeah. have you thought about how well what do you think about gamifying science like in I think this it, way? I think it's great getting people interested in any way possible if we had the budget and the time I I was wanting to put some gamification things into the app when we were first thinking about how we could make this happen because if you could have a leaderboard of you know who has submitted the most sightings or scats or have something uh, interactive yeah exactly <laughs> give people badges of when they like get to certain levels I think that's fun I, scab. yeah <laughs> the best scat ever best looking scat um, yeah I think that's really fun and it just encourages people more I think gamifying things is always going to be an encouraging thing i can't see it really as a bad thing the only bad thing is that it is very expensive to do so i don't know if you've heard of the wild orchid watch project i have heard of it yeah so that's run out of adelaide uni and they got one of the there was a big citizen science grant running a couple of years ago that we missed out on but they got i think five hundred thousand dollars whoa yeah um and orchids. yeah yeah and People mo- love orchids. most of that they do they're really nuts for orchids. yeah <laughs> And they are making, like, pretty much all of that money is spent to developing this really cool gamified app so that they can, you know, encourage people to go to particular areas or discourage people from going Mm -hmm. to areas where, you know, you've got really, exactly, where you don't want, you know, 100 people trampling around trying to take a photo of it sort of thing. I can see where that's where gamification could become a problem. Like, if you've got sensitive areas and you're... I guess the the flip side of that is you can you can work into the game ways of making people to avoid those areas, just yes. like you were saying. Yeah, so I think that's a really clever clever way of doing it, and I think that 
it's such a big task as well because they're pretty much spending their three years of their grant on this app as well. So not only are they spending the money, but the actual time to make it good and exactly what they want. I was really lucky with Alan because he'd already created a citizen science app for a different project called Koala Count. And he came to us and was like, hey, I've got, I've got the skills. I've got this other app I've developed. I could literally just change it up a bit and make it what you want. And I was like, this is amazing. And it was pretty much done, ready for testing within like two months. And we released it within about three to four months. And, wow. and like there's been very little problems with it. You know, there's always bugs every now and again. And Alan's always on top of those, and especially with like iOS updates and everything. Like everything's always a little bit hard. So, yeah, so that was, that was a pretty incredible <laughs> thing. Are there things that you, we now understand more about echidna ecology from your citizen science project and your PhD in general? Yeah, I think the, the major thing is the fact that they are coming so much closer into highly populated human areas than I would have ever anticipated. So if we look at our map at the moment, uh, there are a lot of sightings literally in the middle of Adelaide. Like you're looking up Glen Osmond Road area and it's just... It can't be good for them because, right. you know, not only is it a highly trafficked area, so they're more likely to become roadkill, but there's not that many food sources for them. And we're seeing an overlay at the moment of them just living sort of in the, you just see them in the patches of green spaces. Right. And having such a highly fragmented area of green spaces around the city, that's just going to lend themselves to more trouble than good. So I also, we're also seeing them a lot more in agricultural areas too. So not sure if farmers would be particularly happy about that either. They do yeah. cause a little bit of trouble with their fences. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, they can bulldoze through anything. Wow. Um, so echidnas on, on farmland have, have never really been um, a great thing. Most people are fine with them, but, you know, there's there's some, some that aren't <laughs> great. I guess, like, one of the other things we must be understanding from your project is the kinds of problems and questions we need to be asking about echidna ecology. Yeah, exactly. It's kind like, of a good baseline. It is. It's a fantastic baseline. And the good or scary thing is that we've collected more sightings in one year of running this project than has been collected for the past 10 years of from just you know normal studies and most of them haven't come from ecological studies based on echidnas it's just been you know other government sort of led projects that have just you know ticked down when they see an echidna when they're doing other sort of surveys so that stuff is automatically goes into ALA which you can see and it's really hard to then track if population changes are really happening or if it's a bias of when people have just happened to see them so if we can make this a more densely packed database and you know get you know more than 5,000 sightings every 18 months then that will only be good yeah that's kind of exponential yeah yeah and it and it has been exponential like we're getting more signings more quickly ever since the project has started so we hit 5,000 in March and we're already almost up to five and a half thousand signings so it's just getting bigger and bigger as it's going along which Um, is great to see like our downloads have like still slowly been coming in but obviously with the cohort of people we've already got are just so so invested so engaged that they're just continuously giving us more and more data i think most people know obviously of the short the kidney the kidney we have in australia yeah but there are most people i don't know if other people know about the other species of echidna there are three other extant species yeah. of echidna the long beef echidnas mm-hmm. and they're all in png and i believe they're all critically endangered yes so you've got the yeah from eastern a- and western long beef and atten boroughs yeah i like so, atten boroughs yeah <laughs> have you thought about how maybe 
your app or the information you're getting on echidna ecology in general can help the conservation of those critically endangered species? I'm not sure about the ecology because I think PNG is quite a different place to Australia and it's really hard to actually do field work there. I know I've been speaking to Chris Helgen who he's done quite a bit of field work in back in his heyday up there and it's just difficult terrain but we've been speaking to him about how we can actually use more of the genetic tools to help with that. So if we can even just get some echidna scats collected from up there would be amazing and we can actually find out more about their biology because we don't even have basic genetic information about them. Like we've at least got where our lab actually is involved in the drafting of the first echidna genome so for the short-beaked oh, echidna. Cool. So we're involved with the platypus and that's getting updated as well. And we now have some samples so we can actually look into more things about the long-beaked echidnas too. I know there was a study a while back where they were trying to search for the long-beaked echidna at the top of Australia because people thought that they might still be around. Because they were here in Australia at one point, right? Yes, they were, but that was a very long time ago. Um, Although Chris found a a skeleton or a, a... skin of an echidna that was labelled, a long-beaked echidna that was labelled as being in the Kimberleys in 1900 or 1901 and that lends itself to figuring out whether that's truly a long-beaked echidna that was found in 1900 because if it was like that's amazing mm-hmm. because apart from that they should not have been there for thousands of years. So I know there was an echidna scout project going on I think from Jeremy Austin's lab and he was sort of hunting for the long-beaked echidna by looking at the DNA in those scouts but unfortunately nothing was found from that but if we can if we can still see if we can find some long-beaked echidnas in northern Australia that would be pretty uh, cool. Some of that country is pretty unexplored. Yeah so exactly. It's not impossible. Yeah and even just getting the the hormone tools up and running for because we're doing with all this stuff with the captive breeding population we're looking at reproductive hormones as well so if we can even if we can get some more long to kidnas into captivity in Australia, then we can maybe start some breeding programs right. as well. There's only one long beaked echidna left, and that's in Taronga Zoo. So oh, okay. just one male left is all we've got right now. Oh, sad little fella. I know. <laughs> so before I let you go, I've got some bonus questions. Okay, right? great. One, electrosensing. <laughs> so people, I don't know, people might know about platypi and their electrosensing and finding things in muddy water, but yep. echidnas, the other monotremes, also have electrosensors. What are they used for? Go. <laughs> uh, also a controversial topic. It, so they've got the same similar structures in their beaks that platypus do that let them do electrosensing. So, and there was a study that was done that, uh, so Peggy doesn't really believe this, and so I, I like Peggy too much that I always believe what she believes, uh, <laughs> um, where they put batteries in the soil to see if the echidna would be drawn to them, and apparently they were. So they think that they have to keep the beak moist with like mucusy stuff, uh-huh. and that will help them track their ants and insects and stuff in in soil. So that's the theory behind it. I don't know how like accurate it is or not, but they do have the similar structures. So whether they're still functional is still under debate. Okay, bonus question number two. This is the one I've been waiting the whole episode to ask you. Why in the world do male echidnas have four-headed penises? (laughs) Um, Why is still not entirely known? I can't even, even, like, (laughs) conceive of the mechanics of that, like... Um, Other fun fact about echidna penises is so they've got the four heads and they only actually ejaculate out of two at a time and it, like, splits in half. So you've got, like, (laughs) the left two and then the right two... Again, I'm not sure who did those experiments. Um, (laughs) 
but yeah, why why they have four and what that means for helping with their reproduction and with their long because you know these things must have been an adaptive trait like. One would assume, right? I don't, yeah, I really don't know, but echidnosex in general is just weird, so. <laughs> All right, well, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. If people want to download your app, it's available on the App Store and Yeah, yeah, so, um, yeah, if you're iPhone, um, App Store, um, or Android, Google Play, you can just search Echidna CSI and it'll pop up. We also have a website, so if you Google Akin the CSI, it's the easiest way to find us. And we're on all of the socials, so Facebook, yeah. Instagram, and Twitter. Um, so if you want to follow us, please do, because you'll just see adorable photos of echidnas all day long, Puggles. and I can't, I can't think of anything better than that. <laughs> cool. And if people want to find out more or get involved in citizen science projects, how can they... Yeah, so there is a Australian Citizen Science Association. Um, so again, if you Google them, they have their own website and they're pretty much linked to that BioCollect page that I was telling you about where it lists all of the different different projects that exist in Australia. There's also a South Australian chapter of that, which I'm on the committee for, and we're actually holding a, um, a meeting in a few weeks' time, the 6th of June, at Glenunga Hub. So if you are interested in coming along, that starts at 6 o'clock, and it's just going to be a couple of people talking about their projects. I'm actually going to be giving a rundown on the US Citizen Science Conference that was out in March as well, and it's a great place just to meet the community. And the way I got involved in this was just coming along to these types of meetings, talking to people, being like, how does this work? What do I have to do? And that's pretty much how it all started. So I think talking to people is the easiest way. Come talk to me if you want. I'm more than happy to share my wisdom. <laughs> we'll make sure we put a link to that in the, in the Yeah, great. The notes. Right. Well, Talia, thank you so much. Ah, thank you so much for having me. Cool. <laughs>